Peter said, I really am learning that God doesn't show partiality to one group of people over another. Rather, in every nation, whoever worships him and does what is right is, is acceptable to him. This is the message of peace he sent to the Israelites by proclaiming the good news through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You know what happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism John preached. You know about Jesus of Nazareth, whom God anointed with the Holy Spirit and endowed with power. Jesus traveled around doing good and healing everyone oppressed by the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did, both in Judea and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him up on the third day and allowed him to be seen, not by everyone, but by us. We are witnesses whom God chose beforehand, who ate and drank with him after God raised him from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Amen. Thanks. So of all of the parts of the creed that are difficult for us to engage with because of our own assumptions and baggage and our built up hopes and fears, the cultural water that we're swimming in that we couldn't even really describe or tell the temperature to someone else. Today's might be the hardest. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I think there's a couple ways to go with that, a couple things that particularly stick out. Some of us will immediately and exclusively hear the first part of that phrase. He will come again. Maybe that's the way that you are brought up, like, as the Fanny Crosby song says, visions of rapture now burst on your sight, right? I didn't really grow up with um, that sort of apocalyptic outlook, but I must admit that I certainly went through a phase of this. Um, while most uh, kids go off to college and like party and so wild oats, I went off my first year of college um, to a place that I didn't know very many people and didn't have many friends and I had just made this um, pretty big uh, faith decision and God was working in me to, um, uh, to kind of own my own discipleship journey and follow Jesus. And so my first year in college in about a two month span when I was really lonely and I, I first went to the dorm, I read through like 12 volumes of Left Behind consecutively. You, you can tell like this is not the sort of thing that makes you like really popular and, and make friends very well, right? Um, but uh, I, I do have to say that I've kind of come, well, I have come out of that phase. And I, I specifically remember a, a, a key moment in that before I started seminary at Duke and I read this, this book that, I've rec that I'd recommend anyone and we've done a, a book study on it before at Oak. Um, called Surprised by Hope by N.T. Wright that talks about the content of our hope together. And I remember lying in bed one night uh, next to Rach and, and just saying very nervously, babe, I don't think I believe in the rapture anymore. I don't think it's going to happen that way. And I remember she just like 
rolled over to me sleepy eyed and said, okay, go to sleep, you know? Um, but for some of us, it's not so easy. It's not just, okay, go to sleep. Right. Um, but we want to know if not rapture, if Jesus is not coming again in that way, then what? To say that we believe that Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead is certainly to hope for some sort of arrival, like a second advent in terms of like J.R.R. Tolkien or even like Robin Hood. We're hoping for the return of a king to set things right, to hold account all the powers of sin and death, which seem like they've been running amok for a long time and which seem like they're going to be with us indefinitely. N.T. Wright says in that book, he says, this appearing will find neither a dualist rejection of the present world, which is what many of us who grew up around that kind of imagination have, he says, or simply an arrival like a spaceman into the present world, but we are hoping for a transformation of the present world and ourselves within it so that it will be, at last be put to rights and we with it. Death and decay will be overcome and God will be all in all. So to hope in Jesus's return is to hope for resurrection, for restoration. And I think that this gets lost in that sort of the world is going to hell in a handbasket rapture scenario. But in the meantime, we lean into this restoration. We participate in the coming kingdom, which like Jesus himself will be on earth as it is in heaven. In, in Surprised by Hope, he right, continues, he says, we do not, quote, build the kingdom all by ourselves, but we build for the kingdom. All that we do in faith, hope, and love in the present, in obedience to our ascended Lord and in the power of the Spirit will be enhanced and transformed by Jesus' appearing. So maybe that uh, helps those of us who get hung up on the first part of Jesus coming again. But that leads us to the second part that hangs us up. Many of us tune out completely or go mute when it's time to say this as part of the creed, that we believe that Jesus is a judge. It's really not something we're looking forward to or signing up for. We've experienced, maybe we've perpetrated too much religious judgmentalism and a lowercase j, that we don't really want to sign on or dive headlong into divine judgment, capital J, right? It doesn't seem like part of the good news to us. Here's where those apocalyptic images of the warrior Jesus riding in on a war horse to wreck shop often kind of controls our imaginations. This imagery is violent and strange and scary. Revelation is hardly the stuff that we read or that we read to our kids before we head to bed. Consider, though, that those texts, those revelation texts, are like riot texts of an exiled seeker who is breathlessly exhausted from being kneeled on by the knee of empire. These are like wake up call writings that spark and spur our continued hope that change is gonna come, that things will change, things must change, things 
can change in a world that desperately needs God to show up and to mend and heal and in many cases to surgically excise the cancer of sin which is spreading and will kill us without intervention. This is what it means when we say that Jesus is a judge. Jesus is this steady-handed doctor ready to perform surgery on this world with all this inextricable tangle of sin and death that is among us and around us. These images though, these images of the warrior of Revelation aren't our only or our first images. Instead, they kind of have to be superimposed on top of what we've already known and seen in Jesus. Even in Revelation, the Lion of Judah is always also the Lamb who was slain to take away the sin of the world. So when we consider Jesus as judge, get out of your mind that he's up on some high dace with a gavel ready to levy punishment. And instead, remember some of the images from the Gospels. Remember Jesus as the subject of his own shepherd story scandalously leaving the 99 for the one to find and to heal and restore that sheep would surely be left for dead the thief comes to kill steal and destroy but the good shepherd brings life and life abundant or remember the jesus we just sang about in uh, the song that kristen led heal us the jesus who is pressed in upon by the crowd and feels his healing power go out to the one woman who knew that she just needed to touch the hem of his garment in order to be healed. To be healed of a bleeding that not only caused her to suffer physically, but caused her to be isolated and to suffer socially. Jesus here was the source of life for her on her road to death. Or considered Jesus who restored the demon-possessed boy who had been ravaged, taken over by something stronger than any of the cures the boy's family or Jesus's companions knew. They, they prayed against this demon, they couldn't get him out, and almost unto death, Jesus brings this boy back to life. This is Jesus sorting out the living from the dead, judging this world, even as he's in this world. Sarah read, story out of Acts uh, that features Peter in Acts 10. And we always remember that Peter is almost always a stand-in for the church. Remember, Peter is Simon's nickname, and it means like Petros, the rock, the rock upon which the church is built. So in some ways, Peter is always a stand-in for the church. Whatever is Peter's doing or thinking or whatever his inclinations or even the, the growth that the Lord brings about and allows in him is, is, is what's going on in each and every one of us and all of us together. Peter is struggling to catch the vision for how the resurrected and ascended Jesus will continue to work in his midst. Before our reading, Cornelius, he's a Gentile, God-fearing, praying, generous soldier, but soldiers, uh, Roman soldiers don't tend to mix with this new Jesus people. Cornelius is, is appeared to and is told to seek out Peter and to offer him hospitality. 
and Peter for all the mixture of good and bad in his time with Jesus had become the standard bearer for this new Jesus way. And all of a sudden, as Peter is praying on this rooftop in Joppa, he gets hungry and has a vision. Who among us hasn't gotten hungry and had a vision appear to them? I think that's a common experience. And a sheep falls. And again, this, this is a very literal apocalypse. Apocalypse means unveiling. So there was a veil and the sheep falls. And he sees all of the things that he thought were gross and out of bounds. But me having some family from Louisiana, most of this stuff that he saw seems like pretty good eating. It's shellfish and pork and all this good stuff. And now Peter, who was once grossed out of, about all this stuff, now sees this as fair game. This is part of the judgment of God. There is nothing unsacred, only sacred and desecrated, and God is making all things new. The voice proclaims, never consider unclean what God has made pure. In short, leave the judgment up to the judge. This revelation launches Peter into a sermon when he meets Cornelius, whose faith he would have previously been skeptical towards and who he wouldn't have felt comfortable sitting across the table unless Peter himself was in charge of the menu. Peter begins, I really am learning that God doesn't show partiality to one group of people over another. Rather, in every nation, whoever worships him and does what is right is acceptable to him. This is the language of the judgment of God, and it's the sound of the scales falling off Peter's eyes. God's judgment is restoring and opening up new avenues of faith and faithfulness where our imaginations has, have previously closed off or closed down. Peter says, you know about Jesus of Nazareth, whom God appointed, anointed with the Holy Spirit and endowed with prayer. Jesus traveled around doing good and healing everyone oppressed by the devil because God was with him. Because God was with Jesus, people got free. Creation got healed. Peter finishes, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. We see that. The, the creed is so scriptural here, that Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Everyone who believes in him believe, receives forgiveness of sins through his name. We see here, judgment and forgiveness go together. They're, not, they're never separated here. Judgment and forgiveness go together. There's, this is such a difficult thing for us to grasp because most of our ideas about Justice, when we, the, the, what we think we know about justice, and then what we often import and, and put on to God as justice are retributive rather than restorative justice. God's justice restores rather than punish. God's just, justice and judgment is towards forgiveness and healing. I was listening to his podcast the other day, on the restorative justice movement. And this advocate 
uh, Suyatha Baliga, she spoke about um, the need for restorative justice and, and particularly just the way that our systems are set up against restorative justice and more towards opposition and retribution. She talked about how even the Miranda rights, which seem like a good idea because they're, they're I guess, supposed to protect a suspect. You know, these are like every cop show you've ever seen. Um, you, you have the right to an attorney. Um, anything you can, anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. So it's, it's meant to protect, but, but um, you're given the right to remain silent, but it makes it imprudent or impossible for someone to say sorry, uh, these Miranda rights that are supposed to protect us. Um, any suspect who, uh, even if there wasn't intent in committing a crime, but any suspect who wants to say sorry to uh, the, the, the person on the other side who had suffered, their lawyer would say, never say that. That is an admission of guilt. Uh, so there's no incentive, there's no possibility for forgiveness because there's no offer of repentance or of sorrow. There's, there's no way to say sorry. Uh, but here, God is building in an expectation and a possibility for forgiveness. That is expanding the possibility for restoration through judgment. We don't circumvent judgment. God judges and we can be forgiven. All of the mechanisms for exclusion are dismantled towards embrace. Jesus creates space to sort out the living from the dead in each and every one of us together. It's an amazing commentary on Acts by Willie Jennings, and he com comments on this sort of judgment. He says, God shows no partiality from verse 34. God God's tastes are much wider than Peter had imagined until this moment. Peter is at the threshold of revelation. And that revelation is not of God's wider palette for people, but that Peter's range of whom to love and desire must be expanded until it stretches beyond his own limits into God's life. God is pressing Peter's aesthetic towards death and resurrection. The dying and rising to new desires is now the call emerging for him. And that's the call that is emerging for us too. The dying and rising of new desires. That is the hope for God's judgment that, that it might actually make us more discerning and more generous while less judgmental ourselves that we can trust in God's judgment and hope for it, and that'll make us less judgmental. That we might, like Peter, come to see Jesus as the one who has come to judge the living and dead. Remember, that's now the range of Jesus's expertise, living and dead, human and divine. Jesus is an expert of it all. He's been there and he's done that. He's come from the divine life and he's emptied until he's become one of us and with us and for us. And then he emptied even more that he might experience death and even more than that, a horrific public death and a death that was meant to humiliate and intimidate and erase. But the humble Jesus would not be humiliated. He'd be vindicated and victorious. 
Jesus's death would be the Trojan horse by which he would descend to the dead, the deadest death, and raid hell's prisons, freeing the captives and liberating those made refugees by their own sin and by the powers of sin in the world. And he'd welcome all of them, all of us home from the far country. So yes, Jesus is willing and able to judge the living and the dead because he is life and has known death. So we can trust Jesus to get it right. He is an expert on the living and the dead. Even if all this seems really mysterious to us in the meanwhile. Jesus knew that this was confusing and frustrating. That that there's living and dead walking around side by side at all times. And it feels like it's never going to get sorted out. He told all these terrible stories. He told stories about the weed and the tear and the sheep and the goats. These parables are really tricky things. They resist our attempts to systematize them or to make them into hard and fast rules. You, you, they're kind of like unstable chairs when, when uh, you try to lean hard on them because you think they'll hold you. They collapse right under you. Instead, they're meant to be doors. They're not chairs where you sit and settle. They're doors that you walk through into this new imaginative world that they create. But don't rest on your assumptions. Even if you've been walking around in these parables your whole life, they continue to shift in angle. So the story of the sheep and the goats does this. It's a, it's a judgment parable of Jesus in Matthew 25. In this judgment parable the son of man comes in glory and sits on the throne this is jesus telling a story and it, it's it's it blurs the line between fiction and nonfiction. this is kind of like when people ask you serious questions for a friend right jesus is telling this hypothetical story about the son of man who comes in glory to sit on the throne and it says all the nations are gathered at the foot of the throne in the king separates the sheep from the goats. The sheep are those who gave food and drink and hospitality and clothing and care and companionship to the king. The goats did none of those things. But the weirdest thing is that the whole affair is a double-blind test. Nobody specifically remembers doing a darn thing for the king. They couldn't pick the king out of a lineup. Imagine the nerves here. This is everyone's greatest nightmare. A major test, the major test, the only test that you not only didn't know to study for, but you weren't even aware that you had taken the test. This isn't just like showing up to a test you hadn't studied for. This is showing up and them saying, you finished the test and you didn't know you were taking it, right? It's scary, scary stuff. And then in the story, the king kind of, pulls the pin on the grenade and says, whatever you did to the least, the last, the lost, the littlest and the closest to death, that was me in disguise the whole time. <laughs> Robert Farr Capon is an amazing com- commentator on the, the parable stories. He says, do you finally see? Nobody knows anything. The righteous didn't know they were in relationship with the king when they ministered to the least of his brethren any more than the cursed knew they were despising the king when they didn't so minister. He says, 
Knowledge is not the basis of anyone's salvation or damnation. Action in dumb trust is. Action in dumb trust is. And the reason for that is salvation only comes by relationship with the Savior. By a relationship that from his side is already an accomplished eternal fact. And therefore needs only to be accepted by faith. Not in any other way. Martin Luther says, no man can know or feel he is saved. He can only believe it. It's already done. So the restorative judge, Jesus, is issuing a call to us to believe and to be saved. He's already told us that he's for us. That's established eternal fact. Even though there is living and dead in each of us, we have a choice to put kind of crudely, our choice is that we might either be lepers or zombies. You see lepers in the gospel stories are those looking for healing. They're looking for God to remove the death from their bodies and bring them back to life. But in pop culture zombie stories, zombies are the walking dead looking to bring others into more death. So we can know and serve the savior by knowing and serving and being with and being the least of these. Not just because it will get us into heaven, but because that is the way heaven is and heaven is what shall become of earth. If we aren't looking to participate in that now, we don't need any sort of judge to keep us from participating in it through eternity. In some sense, eternity has already started. Jesus's judgment has already started. The kingdom is at hand, repent and believe the good news. Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. I, I, want, to, I want to close our time together. This is another um, kind of benefit of our, of our uh, reliance on technology. I want to close with a poem by one of my favorite poets, Malcolm Geit. And he has this, uh, this poem actually popped up in my email this morning. Um, and so we'll roll with it. And we have the cool benefit of getting to hear him read his own poem. So you get to see it and hear it. This is about in judgment. Judica me domine, a response to Psalm 26. That I may find my peace in all he wills. I call on him in faith to judge for me. Since my own judgment fails and all my skills in reckoning forget his clemency. For when I judge myself, when I judge others, I do so with a false severity. He has a far more patient love that gathers all his lost and fallen children home into that habitation where he mothers, fathers and befriends us, where the same love is lavished on the least as on the greatest, and he welcomes all who come to him. I may have shunned them, but the son who died for them knows better than I do. Oh, let me see with his eyes from now on.
invite you to pray with me. Lord, restorative judge Jesus, let us see with your eyes from now on. Let us see ourselves with your eyes. You might help us judge and parse out the living from the dead. We might always be moving towards your healing and restoration. Help us have your eyes to see the living and the dead in this world. That we might work with you, building for the kingdom. And Lord, help us have your eyes and um, imaginative eyes to expect and to hope for you to come again to judge this world. Uh, it's so messy and so tangled and we don't even know how to start. And there are so many things that we want to be judged, but we don't even know how that would work and what justice even looks like. But we trust you, Lord. We trust you to come again to judge the living and the dead. Thanks for, for knowing us, for knowing this world, for knowing the heights and the depths. Thanks for uh, being with us and being for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.